Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Hey, uh, so today we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, chapter 2, and our app that we have in, uh, it has a Bible program in it, and it's actually a really fast one. I use another one for my personal reading that's really slow to load. Ours is really fast. So if you want to follow along today there, the words are going to be on the screen as well, but you can follow along in your app as well today. Um, so we're in a series called Rebel's Guide to Joy. And we're looking at the book of Philippians and how Paul, through his life and then his writing of this letter to the church he founded, paints this picture of joy that is stronger, different, rebels against how our culture oftentimes thinks about joy and gives us a picture of something much deeper and more lasting. Allow me to give you two quick snapshots this morning that I think actually illustrate that from stories of people in our church today. These aren't the normal pictures of what joy looks like, but they are compelling. They're, they're the stories that when I, when I experienced, I'm going to tell you what happened this last week. When I experienced this last week, to me, it reflects this is what I want to be. And I think that when we all think of joy, frankly, that the stories I'm about to tell you are, the, are what we really want to have in our lives. Both stories this last week originated at Riverside Hospital. We have wonderful elders and leaders in the church who do a lot of the hospital visitation. They're fantastic caring for people. They are the kind of people that when they walk in the room, you just feel loved and you feel safe. And I would say I've done hundreds of hospital visits and I continue to do them, but I wouldn't say that's a sweet spot for me in terms of gifting. If I were in the hospital, I would want Walt and Barb or Ken and Judy to be the ones walking into my room. Just, just say it. They, they just are wonderful at that. But this last week, I got to visit Walt and Barb in the hospital. Barb had her second knee replacement surgery. Uh, she had been in extreme pain for the number of months with uh, just the pain in her knee and some back problems. And, and she'd had a knee replacement in the other knee about a decade ago, and it didn't have a really good experience with it. It wasn't very good. So this whole process leading up to the surgery was quite fa- painful and full of a lot of concern for her. And yet when I walked into the room at Riverside, the whole atmosphere of the room was sunny. It was cloudy outside. It was not a great day on the inside either, but it was just a sunny atmosphere. There was this sense of joy, this sense of laughter, just kind of a positive view of life. And watching Walt and Barb interact with each other and their family and the nurses in, the, in that place just left me inspired, to say the least. I mean, they could even do that after getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning. I mean, come on. That's, that's, that's amazing. And I left the room and I walked down the hall and I said a prayer. I said, God, help me to be like that when I'm older and when I face stuff like that because they remind me so much of Jesus. And then I walked from there. I walked to the information desk, and I got the room number for Carrie Van Runkel. Many of you know who Carrie is. Some of you may not know her by name and put the name and the person together, but you may know her as the the person who walks in here every now and then with her service dog, a lovable big poodle that is around here once in a while on Sunday mornings. Carrie has been fighting cancer for, I, I, I forget how long, but I think it's somewhere upwards of 15 years, I believe. And when she got cancer long ago, she got into a support group of other people with the same kind of cancer. And every single one in her support group died, I think, a decade ago or so. She is like this walking wonder 
to the doctors. Uh, she took an unexpected change for the worse about a week and a half or so ago. Uh, but those of you who know Carrie, she's one of the most vibrant, joyful, she has just this amazing faith in Jesus. I mean, she has her days of struggling with attitude, with the, the weakness and the emotional struggles that go along with fighting cancer. She definitely has those. But And I visited her this last Wednesday on one of those days in the hospital. And yet in the midst of that, she still has this hope and expectation that just oozes out of her, the sense that even in that moment where she could hardly hold her head up in the in the bed, God still has a good purpose for her, and she was talking about that. that She has this awareness of God's presence and this sense of communion with the presence of God that is this solid, not at all flimsy hope that just undergirds her with joy. And again, it's just it's just one of those things you look at and you go, man, could I be like that? It's interesting, our, our world defines happiness and joy so often from a hedonistic view, but our culture and its study of happiness today is actually pushing it back against that dominant view of our culture. One place, one of the reputable places doing research defines happiness this way. They say it's the experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good and meaningful and worthwhile. They generally lump happiness and joy into the same thing. And what we're seeing in Philippians is that Paul is saying that he actually agrees with that definition, especially, particularly, in the longer-term, deeper sense of meaning in life that we can have, that one's life is good and meaningful and worthwhile. And Paul adds to that this idea that that can only happen when we tap into this real vital relationship and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That said, when I have what I refer to as these holy moments like I had this last week in the hospital visiting them, visiting Walt and Barb and Peter and Carrie, and seeing the solidness and the strength of their hope and their joy, it blesses me, but it also makes me question myself. I start asking questions of myself. Why do I grumble all too often? Do you ever do that? Why do I complain about relationships being difficult? Why do I complain about politics in America making me want to grumble and tell sarcastic jokes like I allowed a few to slip in last message last week? Why do I grumble about things not going the way I wish they would? Now certainly, we all need to process stuff. And, and this... Grumbling doesn't mean we should stop talking, not wanting to grumble, because there are certain things in our life that are negative, and we need to process them. And we need to figure out how to do it without grumbling. But grumbling happens when something comes back again and again, and we ruminate on it. And we feel hopeless and frustrated and irritated. And, and the issue, at least the fight with the, with the issue in our heads, is, remains unresolved. Because we still find ourselves arguing in our heads with those people or those situations that have happened in the past. You see, grumbling, or or at least what's behind grumbling that's driving that in our life, is the stuff that's going on in our thoughts and our hearts, and it's a major joy killer in our lives. We, We can be content going through the day experiencing 
joy about life, and then an event or a thought or a conversation happens, and that smoldering grumbling instantly lights a fire that kills joy and leaves us in a place of discontent and anger and unease, right? I mean, you get an email that comes across your inbox that just is worded wrong. It's one of those things you should never write in an email, but you don't know how it comes across. But it comes across wrong, and it's frustrating, and boom, your thoughts are off and running, and Sometimes your mouth is too, and sometimes your keyboard's running back, right? Your mood plummets, and you find yourself having a pit in your stomach. Paul addresses this leading joy killer in the second chapter of Philippians, and he starts in verse 12 by saying this. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And let me just pause there before I get into where he actually starts about what kills the joy. Because we get sidetracked on a, on a really key statement in that text. We look at that text that, that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We get tripped up in one of two places, sometimes both. We look at this idea of fear and we go, well, that sounds like a lot of pressure, right? But fear generally in the Bible means a fear of God, and it's the idea of being awestruck. And the reality is when we encounter God in many ways, at times we are awestruck, and it makes our lives be shaken up and changes our lives. When Paul uses that phrase in this context, what he's really trying to communicate to us is that this, what I'm really talking about, he's saying to us, is really, really important to you finding the kind of joy that God wants you to have in life. And then uh, there's the phrase, work out your salvation. What Paul is not saying is he's not saying we work for our salvation. He's not saying we have to work for it to earn it and try to get it. Uh, There's maybe a couple analogies that would help us understand what he's actually saying here for. One of them is kind of an analogy of going to the gym. It's the idea that God has already given you salvation. He's already given you muscles in your body. In fact, as our text even says, God is already willing and acting. He's already supplying the energy and the ability necessary to use those muscles. But to strengthen those muscles, you have to work them out. To allow your salvation to become a stronger reality in every aspect of your life, you have to work these muscles out. Right? Another way, another analogy that might be helpful, helpful that Jesus himself uses, he refers to the kingdom of God as yeast. And it's the idea that this salvation, this, this presence of the Holy Spirit in you is the yeast of God already in you. It's already been given you. But you need to mix and knead the dough so that it permeates absolutely every aspect and every moment of your life. Because God wants his joy. He wants his presence. He wants his will. He wants his good purpose for you. He wants his healing. He wants joy and peace to become a pervasive part of every single moment and part of your life. But you need to work it out in all the circumstances, in all the areas of life. You need to work out and let it become stronger in you. And then Paul goes on to expose one of the biggest of joy killers. He says this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then skip down to verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, what Paul's saying there is, even if all this stuff that I've ta- that, that he talked about last week in chapter 1 where he's suffering, he's in prison, and all this stuff is going on, even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of coming, coming from your faith, I am glad, he says, and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And we return again to what I told you was one of the main themes. He keeps coming back in this verse of saying, I will rejoice. That's the invitation. I will rejoice. Will you rejoice? Will you rejoice with me no matter what's going on? Will we see God and His joy and His hope as our primary focus? And he's comparing and contrasting this grumbling which steals joy and this new focus on Him, on God. But let me be honest. When I read this passage, and I had a few people come up after me first service, and I realize I'm probably not alone in this. When I read this passage in isolation, I tend to feel guilty. I tend to go to this place of feeling weak because, frankly, I still grumble far more than I wish I would in life. And this word Paul uses for grumbling is, is, is actually, the original language has this kind of word picture attached to it where it's, it's this smoldering fire. What he's saying is we have this smoldering discontent, this slowly burning thing that just kind of keeps going. But the problem is smoldering fires can and all too often do burst into something much more damaging and big than that. How many of you remember, it's been several years, but in 2012, there was this fire in Avon, Ohio that made the news. It's up by Cleveland. There was a house that caught fire because of the smoldering of the, um, the mulch on the outside of the house. The mulch got too hot smoldering and caught some pots on fire and caught the siding on fire and the house burned. We see, when I think that way about this passage and I start to get caught up in that guilt that so easily comes from this passage, it, it begins to spiral out of control for me because I remember, you know, the Israelite stories in the Old Testament where they're coming out of the, out of the slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And what was the number one sin that they had that kept tanking them from all God, the good God wanted to do? It was grumbling. Grumbling that Moses wasn't a good enough leader. Grumbling that God wasn't fulfilling his promises. Grumbling that the hardness of life was too difficult. That they were better off in slavery than they were in the freedom that God was trying to teach them to live into. And I realized, wow, I can, I can be so much like them. And that's scary, isn't it? It's not good. And, and then when I recognize that sin and that lack of faith in me and that tendency to grumble, then I'm tempted to grumble more, but now I'm not grumbling about my circumstances anymore. Now I'm grumbling about myself because I'm saying, why can't you just be stronger and happier and more faith-filled, Ross? Why can't you be better, Ross? Now, either I'm unhinged upstairs and the only one who thinks that way, or I'm describing the thoughts that all too often go on in your own mind, in your own heart of you going to that place of getting frustrated, and then you turn the frustration on yourself of why can't you be stronger. And we end up in this place where this grumbling leaves us feeling bleak. It leaves us feeling anxious to perform, to be better. It leaves us 
feeling confused, wondering where God is in all of this and questioning, can I ever really strongly, consistently, solidly stay in a place of contentment and joy and peace in my work or my family or whatever the situation is? See, grumbling or, or again, more importantly, what's behind that symptom of grumbling in us is a leading joy killer in our lives. And Paul doesn't write this admonition to stop grumbling in a vacuum. He actually sets up this whole discussion through one of the most powerful passages, I think, in all of the Bible, which precedes this. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1. And Paul says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by taking that same like-mindedness that we talked about last week where where, when they were founding the church, Paul and Silas are, are worshiping even while they're beaten and bloody in stocks in prison trusting and rejoicing in God's plan and purpose more than their circumstances. He says, be that kind of like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition. That word selfish ambition could also be and often is translated rivalry. So do nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So what Paul is really saying here, when he wants us to be like-minded with him, is he wants us to actually take on the mindset of Christ. But what is that all-important mindset of Christ that we need to understand? Early church fathers on to today, many people have summarized it through these two statements or in similar ways, that pride is the mother of all misery and humility is the mother of all joy. And when you really stop and examine what's behind most of our grumbling, isn't it pride? Really? Is it not you trying to repair your image I'm angry because so-and-so uh, put me down. They offended me. They hurt me. They, they said I'm not good enough or as good as I should be or, or, or that I failed. And that's not who I am, says my grumbling, right? I'm better, and they're jerks. It's good. I'm good and nice, and they aren't, right? Isn't our grumbling all too often defending our worth? I deserve better. I deserve easier. I deserve more. I'm better than that. I'm better than them. I work just as hard and I'm just as intelligent, so I deserve that promotion and getting paid as much money as they do. You see, grumbling is our, your, my, self-protective, self-centered, self-assertion of our own rights and our own needs. Needing to assert a view of yourself that is spawned because there's discomfort within you as to who you are based on other people's comments or circumstances. The Bible, if you were to try to summarize in words, in one phrase, the way the Bible defines pride, it might be this way. You would say it's shifting your ultimate confidence and peace and joy in life from God to yourself, to oneself. See, pride entails this 
fear that someone else is taking advantage of me or taking something away from me and diminishing my value. So you need to be defensive, and oftentimes you overcompensate in that defensiveness to bolster yourself, right? Pride involves you comparing yourself to others and needing to measure up to a certain standard in order to feel good about yourself, right? So I grumble about my boss because he threatens who I am because he didn't take my advice, right? I grumble about politicians because they threaten my sense of security and my rightness and my dreams for life. So Paul leads up to this discussion of grumbling as a symptom of pride by illustrating for us what humility is using Jesus as the example. But, but even when we think of that word humility, it's a word we admire and we use and we want to be like. But it's also a word that we have, frankly, mixed baggage with, and we have wrong perceptions about what it is. I mean, humility often has this sense of weakness associated with it, right? It's, it's this, almost this sense of embarrassment associated with it. If I admit my weakness, that threatens my view of myself. If I admit my weakness, that threatens my worth, and it threatens what other people will think of me. If I have to admit I lied, then they won't trust me, and they'll think less of me. That's really hard. I mean, that's the reason why it's really, really hard for us to apologize when we do something wrong without slipping into defensiveness and trying to justify ourselves by explaining. But Jesus shows us a humility that is not weakness, and it doesn't involve accepting a low view of ourselves. He models for you a humility that is different. Paul starts his discussion of illustrating Jesus' humility this way by saying, Jesus, who being in very nature God. Humility starts by recognizing who you are and the great value you have. Jesus is God, fully, absolutely, completely God. That's who he is. And he's comfortable at peace, content, confident in that. So the question is, who are you? Who are you? We've answered that a lot of times, and we can talk about how the Bible says about that. You are, you are created in God's image. You're the pinnacle of his creation. As a follower of Jesus, you are adopted as a son or a daughter of God himself. You are co-heirs with Jesus. You are a person who has a life of tremendous meaning because God has already planned in advance really good impact and good things for your life to produce. And he wants us to live a life full of the Holy Spirit as a follower, who, a follower of him who knows his voice. And because we know his voice, we can pray confidently and we will see miracles. And you can raise great kids because you hear his voice and you know how to deal with some of those difficult moments of parenting. And you can lead great companies because you are led by him. But we hear that and that sounds trite, doesn't it? Because we hear it all the time. We say it over and over again. And it sounds trite. But just because it sounds that way, it's still powerfully true because when you are grumbling... You don't believe those things, do you? You don't believe those trite statements when you're grumbling. And yes, we are broken and imperfect by our sin. But sin is not who you are and who you were created to be. 
Humility starts by knowing who you are. And even sin that is already forgiven perfectly by Jesus and His love and His work that He's already done for us cannot shake that security of who you are in God's eyes. Humility does not start from a place of weakness. It starts, or demeaning yourself, it starts from a place of you recognizing who you are. But humility versus pride also makes at least one other really decisive decision, a decision of driving a stake in the ground that orients absolutely every aspect of your life. The text goes on to describe Jesus, and it says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, humility means as a person created by God in his image, you recognize without question, as Jesus recognized, that God and his plans for you are the complete source of meaning in your life. Why did Jesus come? He came to die to save us all. His mission drove absolutely every aspect of meaning for him. You, and that means that if you're going to be humble, you need to know that he is the one who brings meaning to your life, every aspect. Jesus, the entire meaning of his mission is wrapped up in life, in that focus, and nothing else matters in his life. So humility demands of us that we lay down defining our own meaning and we discover our entire meaning in life by following God, by obeying Him and His Word and the things that He reveals to us about our purpose, regardless of the circumstances. Letting Him shape our desires rather than our desires shaping our focus without Him first shaping them. And that means we also operate in life like Jesus, who it says, being God, made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We become servants in all we do. Do So humility is you know who you are and you know who brings meaning to your life and you understand your relationship to God and others and that is being a servant. This past week I, I was searching, wanting for a story to illustrate what I just said in a way that, that could make it live for you guys and I, and I couldn't come up with one and so I was praying Wednesday night asking God for help because Sunday's coming, right? And I don't have a story. And a few minutes later, I got this email and this email started off saying this, I'm not completely sure why I feel compelled to update you on Karen, but I do feel compelled, so I am. And I went, well, I think this is you answering a prayer that I just prayed. But I have to ask permission and make sure that that gets confirmed. So I asked them permission to share this, and the, the Quest people uh, who were involved in this gave me permission to share it anonymously, so I've changed all the names of anybody who's here at Quest uh, to something else. But let me tell you what the rest of the email says. It says, Back in the summer, both I and Susie approached you about a neighbor of Ellen. Ellen was a Quest person who was moving out of state and had been caring for her neighbor. And Karen, uh, her neighbor Karen, was fighting stage 4 breast cancer. 
I helped make organic juices and various other minor things for her a couple times a week, but Susie did so much more. Susie has basically put her life on hold for the past month or so as Karen's condition deteriorated quickly, not to mention considerable sacrifice that since the summer, taking her to treatment and helping her with so many other things. Susie was even assigned power of attorney, if that tells you the level of assistance she has given to Karen. Three weeks ago, Karen called me late at night and needed help, and fortunately I was able to run over and assist her, assist her and help her get settled for the night. Since that time, Susie has been with her nearly 24 hours a day, putting her entire life on hold for someone she didn't even know four months ago. And then she says, Karen passed today. So she passed this last Wednesday. And the writer goes on and says, Jesus told a story about the Good Samaritan. That, in my mind, seems to pale in comparison to what Susie has been to Karen. Susie would likely never share this, but somehow I felt it was important for some of her and my spiritual family to know. I am in awe of her spirit, she says, her unselfish willingness to be Jesus' hands and feet. To my knowledge, Karen did not accept Jesus as her Savior, but it wasn't without prayers that I know were going up on her behalf. See, when we love and serve like we're being invited to in this passage, we give sacrificially of our love. Not just to get people to come to faith, and not for accolades, but we love regardless of whether they come to faith or not, because that's who we are. That's who Jesus wants us to be. We love even if no one ever even knows because Jesus himself humbled himself, sacrificed everything to offer salvation to every human being alive. And many still refuse to come to him even though that love is so great. Even in church, many people still come to church for various reasons. They come for moral reasons or they maybe come for because it's a religious duty and it makes them feel good. Or, but they never have fully accepted who Jesus is or they've never really fully reconciled who they are. Or they've never driven that stake in the, round, in the ground that says my life is going to be totally centered on serving Jesus and his mission regardless of the cost. And there are many as well who, like these three quest people, are involved in caring for someone not going to church, they barely knew, giving sacrificially, laying down their rights, for the, uh, their rights to their ease and their own comfort, their rights to their own time to care for someone. i got to say I'm so blessed and in awe to get to serve Jesus with people like you who are like that. Maybe... Maybe as we want to apply this further, maybe this metaphor will help us determine how we understand when we're grumbling and when we're actually processing things well. Think of it this way. Each day over the course of your life, you're being handed pieces of wood by life, by other people, by situations that we experience throughout life. And some of those pieces of wood look really nice and they're really usable and they're easy to accept. And some of them are really, really tough. Don't look so good, marred by life, tough circumstances in our lives like Karen or like Carrie and Peter or like Walt and Barb experienced this last week. And we're given a choice as to whether we are going to trust God's love and trust God's power and trust that he has a way to make something beautiful out of this so that we're able to follow him in that joy of serving up something beautiful with every piece of wood we get or every stick we get in life. Or we have the choice of throwing that wood on the smoldering fire of discontent 
and allowing our joy to be stolen. But the question then becomes, how do you know whether you're throwing those sticks on the fire of smoldering discontent or, or if you're processing it, just difficult stuff really appropriately? Last week I quoted Blaise Pascal, a 16th uh, or 17th century Christian philosopher who said this. He said, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Really, honestly, to know the difference between a smoldering fire and a healthy processing, it takes quiet time. It takes reflective time in our life, time in prayer with God to identify where we're throwing those pieces of wood that God gives us throughout our life, to discern whether we're appropriately placing them and allowing God to make something beautiful or we're just throwing them on a smoldering fire and stealing our joy and others in the process. I remember having a meeting a long time ago with a person who was frustrated with life in the church. And at the time, I was the leader in the church that they were most connected to. So they came to me to express their frustration. And, and in so doing, they, they were also very, some, some of it fairly and some of it unfairly critical of me. Even some of the good feedback was just given in a critical manner. And out of that meeting, they decided to sever a relationship with me and the church and left. The next day, that same person posted this on Facebook. I just want you to read it. My reaction to that was not saintly. It was, preach it, buddy. That was my reaction. And uh, I actually kept this picture for a long time in a visible place to remind me on a daily basis to stay focused on God and what God wanted to do, not on the criticism. And truth be told, the focus of this statement is really good. That's a good piece of wood given in our life. That's something really great. But one day as I was praying and reflecting on this picture, I, I realized that as good a piece of wood as it was, I was using that wood to throw that and stoke that smoldering fire in my own life. Instead of using it to build something beautiful and learn the grace and love to serve in that relationship, I was allowing it to propel and continue that grumbling and smoldering in my life. And I had to remove it for a long time from my regular viewing because every time I looked at it, it would do that. Why? It just triggered stuff. It just triggered stuff for me. You see, in grumbling and trying to figure out when it's healthy, when it's not, when, when, it's, just, when it's processing and when it's actually grumbling, we have to ask ourselves, what, what's going on in our heart? What's the intent? What's happening in your heart when you do or when you say whatever it is that may possibly be grumbling? In what ways do you take those memories, those pictures, or, or those songs? I mean, I, I've had a lot of songs over my lifetime that were associated with difficult moments, and they were good, fun songs, and they, they're probably good, fun songs that many of you like, but for me, they were tied to smoldering memories. And every time I would listen to those songs, it would add fuel to that fire, and I'd, I'd hear my self-talk begin to start that kind of grumbling going on, and I'd, I'd get that pit in my stomach, and it stole my grace and my compassion and my sense of love and desire to serve other people. And what you see in what Jesus is teaching us here is that serving others, as Jesus invites us to, breaks you free from the shackles of pride and self-absorption and from that grumbling that chokes out the joy of living. And it leaves us with the question, can you serve even that person who hurts you with peace and even joy? 
One important reason uh, humility and serving leads to uh, and serving others leads to true joy is also this. It's because the best joy is shared, isn't it? You remember that old philosophical question that's been asked for ages? If a tree falls in the forest and no one around it, around hears it, does it actually make a sound? Well, duh, yes, right? I mean, I know what the philosophers are trying to get at in asking that question, but even knowing that, this question has always seemed like utterly stupid to me. I mean, doesn't it to you? Am I the only one? Come on. Maybe I'm just weary. Okay. Yet, yet, this is an utterly profound question when we ask it in the context of joy. If you shout for joy in a forest all by yourself, is that really joy? Well, kind of, maybe. But it's not really the lasting, best, strongest joy that we're really wanting because joy is not an individual thing. If it were, Captain Kirk would have stayed on the planet with all the beautiful robot women, all you Trekkie fans, okay? And he would have felt completely content and joyful and fulfilled in that. See, do we want to be happy and joyful in our work experience? Then we need to eliminate the prideful grumbling by taking on this true humility that says, I know who I am in Christ and how good he has made me to be. And I trust his power to finish that work in me. And we need to know that God is the only source and the only power that defines our meaning in life. So whatever barriers or roadblocks we're facing in that environment, we go, God's bigger. That's nothing compared to God. I know he's my only source of defining my meaning in life. And then we need to tap into that joy by serving by serving your boss, by serving your colleagues, by serving your customers with this humble, persistent, complete love, putting their needs above your own, trusting and praying and expecting God to will and to work in that. Do you want a really good family life or a good marriage? Then you need to be committed to serving the needs of your family or your spouse or your parents or your kids. Uh, now, I know that that can be really painful, Especially when your spouse or your kids or your siblings or your parents are, are full of pride and selfishness. That cannot just be difficult. It can be downright painful. Just like it was painful for Jesus to die for us. And for Jesus to still weep so often for us when a person dies not having accepted this extravagant gift of perfect love and perfect forgiveness that he's offered. Hebrews 12, I think, adds a, a wrinkle to this that I want to help move us towards a close with. It's basically the similar lesson to this in, in Philippians 2, uh, but he adds one reflection that's really powerful. It starts this way, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So again, he's saying Jesus is our model. We want to be and think and be like him in every aspect of humility and, and joy and purpose. And then uh, this is what I want you to say here. It says, for the joy... For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy, he faced this rotten piece of wood given to him, 
And he made something beautiful out of it. He allowed God to take that situation and win, which is what humility helps us to do. It helps us to find God's win in this situation and make something beautiful. And that something beautiful is the fact that he gets to extend his love to you in all your imperfection, in all the messed upness. He makes something beautiful out of your life and everyone around you. A joy that is, instead of burning stuff, it it turns everything into a beautiful work of art. You see, to be Christ-like is to be filled with this kind of joy. The Bible tells us it's one evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. It's part of the nature of God. It's, It's who He is. It defines the work he wants us to be about and how he wants us to do that work, how he wants to do that work through us. See, that's where God wants each of us to live as well. He wants each of us to live in this place of making works works of art out of whatever comes our way by life around us all because we are settled in who God is to us. We discover his good purpose in every aspect of life. If you're struggling with grumbling today, with a smoldering discontent, the worship team can come on up now. If your grumbling is, critique is self-focused, meaning you're disliking parts of yourself, you're in that place where you're angry, why can't I be better? Why can't I be something different? Then the invitation of the Holy Spirit today for you is to accept Jesus' view of you, that you are created good in his image and that he is guaranteed that he's going to bring all that good to pass one day. Maybe not all of it in this life, but one day it's all going to come to pass and that he's got a really good, meaningful plan for your life. Even now in all of your imperfection, he has an amazing plan for your life. And it's not just you left alone. It's he who is willing and working. It's not your power alone. He's the one who's going to bring that to pass. You just have to choose him. And his power will work in you. If you're grumbling that you may be struggling with day is outside of yourself. Maybe it's about job. Maybe it's about family or finance or some hardship in your life. And the invitation of the Holy Spirit to you today is to redrive that stake of laying down your rights to choose the life of a servant of God's mission, regardless of the cost, regardless of the circumstances, and begin, like Paul and Silas in that jail that night, to begin to worship God and thank Him for His power in your situation and begin looking to joyfully expect His power to show up. You see, we know the end of Paul and Silas' story when they're in the prison. We know it ends up really in a positive way, right? But they didn't know how it was going to end at the time. In fact, as you read this book of Philippians, uh, this letter of Philippians, Paul is in prison and he's not sure whether he's going to live or die. He doesn't know how the story is going to end up. And still he says, in that, rejoice with me. As I rejoice, you too give thanks to God. Because it doesn't matter whether I live or die, God's power will show up in a really good way and make even this bummer of a situation into something beautiful in life. And if you're here today and you've never decided to follow Jesus, you've never really driven that stake saying, I am going to follow Jesus. You can do that today. 
God demonstrated his love and his pursuit of you and all of humanity in such a good and beautiful way that is beyond our imagination. But you have to choose. You have to choose to humble yourself and choose to view life through his lens and his way and follow him. You have to choose to make your life, your entire life meaning about his mission for you. And it doesn't matter where you're at in life or how old you are. You can choose that now and the rest of your life from here on out can change. It's not too late for you to make that choice. You can do it right now. And if you do, you will be surprised over and over again by a joy that comes out of even the most horrible of the circumstances, the most difficult of circumstances, that lets you live life with this sense of deep, satisfying meaning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we worship you. We worship you. We thank you for how you love us for how you've created us for the good purposes you've created for each and every one of us Lord we worship you we thank you and I pray as we continue to worship right now even through the words of this next song that that you would meet each and every one of us where we're at because each and one of us at some area of our life is probably struggling with this this discontent this sadness this frustration that life is not different in an area. Lord, you come to us in that area right now and help us release it to you and find even now the joy and the peace that you want us to have. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join in worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.